Um, before we, we get into this, this ongoing account and study through the Gospel of Luke, I want to point out that last week when we ended um, our study of chapter 11, there was this invitation that had been given to Jesus from one of the Pharisees to dine with him. But it became quickly evident that this Pharisee, along with the other religious leaders who were joining them for this dinner, were not interested in repenting of the spiritual blindness or of their um, hypocrisy that Jesus had just accused them of openly in front of everyone. And when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus to dine with them reacted um, with condemnation in, in his heart, the one who invited Jesus noticed that Jesus did not practice the traditional ceremony washing. It says that he was astonished, if you remember that. When, when, when that took place, Jesus responded by pointing out really the foolishness of the religious leaders who were overly concerned about their outward behavior while ignoring their inward thoughts and intents of their heart that Jesus pointed out was full of greed, full of wickedness, and, and um, <clears throat> because of this neglect to these inward moral things, to their inward moral cleanliness, Christ said that they were quick to pass by the justice, the righteousness, and the love of God as they only sought to weigh people down with heavy spiritual burdens that they themselves were unwilling to lift. And we know that rather than humbly receiving the words of truth that Jesus had spoke, which had cut into their hard hearts and convicted them of their prideful and unloving ways, these religious leaders lashed out. They lashed out, um, opposed Jesus even more than they had in the past, and they, this is as, as they questioned um, his intentions, trying to catch him in something that he would say so that they might, might accuse him and condemn him more. Now, I bring all of this because as we come to chapter 12, I bring remembrance of all this because as we come to chapter 12 and we continue on with this account, this story, we're, we're, going, to, to, we're going to need a little bit of insight. And that insight comes as we look at what the disciples are at and what they're going through in this situation. Because if you remember... That encounter that Christ had at the dinner meal with the Pharisee where the Pharisees uh, were further exposed to be corrupt and, and um, bad spiritual leaders, if you will, at the very least, that that had happened multiple times in the days leading up to this where Jesus would have these encounters with the Pharisees and he would... Um, and they would, they would battle verbally against one another, and Jesus would speak the truth, and the Pharisees would be revealed to be these men that they were pretending not pretending to be. They, they weren't who they were pretending to be. And, and I think from the disciples' point of view, these encounters must have seemed like great victories over these religious leaders who had been opposing and condemning Jesus with many false accusations for some time. And I'm sure there was this sense of, like, woohoo, you know, our, our, we're winning, we're finally getting ahead, and, um, uh, you know, they're trying to take our leader out, but um, in the end, they're the ones that are looking like the fools over and over and over again. However, it appears that with this sense of victory, with this, this encouragement from, from uh, this point of view, that, that, there were, that the disciples were unaware of the dangers that they were now facing. It's almost like they were, they were letting their guard down. And not only from the religious leaders who were more determined than ever to get rid of Jesus and his disciples as the danger increased because we're told that, that, that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They, wanted, they, 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 they saw him as a threat to their, to the, to their power. 
that they had and to the way of life that they had where these guys would go around, you know, from what we read last week, you know, seeking the, the best seats in the, in the synagogues and loving the praises of men as they would walk down the streets, that this whole way of life was in jeopardy because of Christ and the things that he was saying and because of his disciples. And so they wanted to take Jesus out and they were willing to do just about anything to do so. And they were wanting to take out Jesus' disciples. And there was a danger there. But not only from that, there was also a danger as we look at chapter 12 now of, uh, of a great, there was a danger from this great number of people who were now following after Jesus because the crowds were hearing and seeing these things and well as well and they were seeing the miracles that Jesus were performing. He was raising people back to life. He was casting out demons. His disciples had been empowered to do the same so it was exponentially happening more and more and more as these, these miraculous things were going on. But, but there was a danger from these people who were following Jesus now because the crowds as a whole, their major concern wasn't to come and hear spiritual truth. Their major concern, their, their reason they were following Jesus was that Jesus might do a miracle for them or provide for, for one of their needs. They're, 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 they, were, they were carnally minded, they were temporally minded, and, and they weren't interested in spiritual things or in the kingdom of God. And there was a danger in that. In the light of these two situations, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and then the crowds of people that were following after, and we see by these two situations <clears throat> what, that, that what Jesus went on to say to his disciples here in chapter 12 um, is that the, 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 the snare of popularity and, and the fear of man, which has brought so much ruin to, to many Christians' lives, both of those things, um, were dangers that the disciples were now facing. The snare of popularity and, and um, this, this being afraid of men and the, the warnings and words of encouragement that Jesus spoke are things that we must also heed and, and take hold of today if we're to be those faithful disciples that follow after Christ with the lives that we've been given. So with that, if you'll follow along, I'm going to read chapter 12, uh, the first 12 verses, and then we'll kind of pick up and go from there. And it says in verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, and there's a very graphic description, a tell for us of just how large these people were. They were so enthralled with Christ and what was going on and trying to get to him and follow after him. They were literally trampling over one another, almost like a mob mentality, I guess, is what we're getting, get, being told of here. So because of this, and it says that he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the air and in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you, verse 5, whom you should fear. Fear him whom after he has killed, he has the power to cast into hell, yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, literally, do not be afraid, for you are of more value than many sparrows. 
Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man, speaking of himself, Jesus, will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And Lord, I ask God for um, wisdom from you, Lord, that you would reveal truth. You tell us, God, that um, spiritual things can only be discerned by the Spirit not by our natural flesh or our own understanding. And so, God, we cry out to you and ask for your uh, intercession and your um, leading in, in, in what goes on here as we teach and study your word together, <clears throat> as you teach us, Lord, to um, know more of your will for our lives, Lord, as we are encouraged and as we are take heed to these warnings that you spoke to your disciples so many years ago that they would still find a place of application in our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, now, in this chapter there, as we read on even and continue into verse 34, you're going to see Christ, just to give you a little heads up, he's going he's gonna to have a man who will he'll come to him out of the crowds and ask him a question to, you know, be a judge over a certain matter. And Jesus gives us the parable of the rich man, and then from there even... He gives this advice, this encouragement to not worry. And, and he, he, the, that famous passage of Scripture where it says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. And when we, we take all of these things together, on the surface it kind of looks like they're kind of random, maybe a little abstract in its construction. And almost as if Luke in his orderly account left some things out for us. But, but it is an orderly account, and when we follow the thread and connect the dots through the things that Christ is speaking, there's an overall message being presented, and we see how they're all tied together and how they relate to our lives today. And so for the platform for where we begin here, the very first dot in this thread that we're going to weave, that, that Christ weaves for us, and he connects the, the, the line so that we have this overall picture, in this very first verse of this chapter, what we see is that the stage is being set. The stage is being set is, is for what Christ is going to say as we see, we're told that about these crowds of people who had been following Jesus had now grown to an innumerable number, more than that had ever been before in all of Christ's ministry. Um, and in light of this, it's in light of this that Jesus kind of stops. And, and we, we know in Christ's ministry that he does this a lot. The whole Sermon on the Mount was one of those times where Jesus was ministering to the people. He was healing them and, 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 and uh, teaching them about the kingdom of God and calling them to repentance. And then Jesus would like stop and he would look over to his disciples and he would just begin to say some things to them and to teach them. And this is one of those moments, and that moment is, is presented because of the crowds of people who have been following, like I said, but also because of the interactions that have been going on with the Pharisees and this, this revelation of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that Christ called out. And so the stage is set by this, and in light of this, Jesus speaks to his disciples, it says, and we see that he encourages them ultimately with three 
with three messages. And if you're keeping notes this morning, this is these, these, the messages are this. It breaks down like this. The first message, in light of these things that were going on, was not to be afraid of man and to fear God. And, and we see the importance of that because um, not only because of the danger that came from the Pharisees, don't be afraid of them, don't worry, fear God, but even, even with the crowds of people, because in each instance, those circumstances could possibly affect the way that the disciples would now react or say or do going forward. And Jesus grounds them and he grounds us by saying, don't be afraid of man, but fear God. Secondly, the second message of encouragement attached to a warning that we'll read about also was to not put their things not to put their trust in the temporal things of this life, but to trust, trust in God alone. Not to put their trust in the temporal things of this life, but to put their trust in God alone. And, and Jesus, I think, kind of um, indirectly, maybe even we got to look between the lines a little bit, but verses 11 and 12, he talks about how they're basically going to be arrested. And he'll talk to him more about that. But this is the first time in verse 11, he says, now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer them or what you should say. And it seems like, where did that come from? It just seems to come out of left field. But the idea is when we see where the disciples are at and the things that Christ is speaking to them, and we know, as we see the big picture, that these disciples thought they were going to Jerusalem with Jesus, where Jesus was going to be enthroned, right? And they were going to rule and reign by his side. The Pharisees are now being shamed openly. This religious structure system and this power base was being forded by Christ in, in front of everyone. And now the crowds of people were following after them. And, 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 and the tendency is, is that they begin to look around the temporal things of this life and, and, and put trust in it. And, and what we know is the things that they were looking at were, were not at all the way that it was going to be. The way it was going to be and it, for all of them is that they, they, would, they would be arrested. They would be tried. And, and so in that, what would they need to do to not trust in whether they were raised up to a place of authority in this life or whether they had power or money or whatever? They needed to trust in God alone. And perhaps they were getting their eyes or were tempted to get their eyes off of this truth, this principle, to trust in God alone, not in the temporal things of this life. And then lastly, the third message that we'll see as we read on, we haven't got there yet, but to, to serve God as a faithful servant who, who anticipates the unexpected return of his master. To serve God as a faithful servant who anticipates the unexpected return of his master. And again, that's about kingdom building and not about building a kingdom here on this earth. Now, these messages were not new that we just spoke about in regards to the times that Christ had spoken to his disciples in the past, these were messages that he had already delivered to them. And there were principles that he had continually reinforced and taught to them and, and, and had been doing it for some time. But they were timely reminders of instruction because of the fierce attacks that, from the religious leaders and also because of the countless numbers of people who were now following Jesus. And the point is, is it, is it kind of bring it all together and move forward, is that either one of these things could have been a temptation for Jesus' disciples to move away from the, the, these valuable principles that he had been teaching them. And so the first thing that Jesus instructed them to do is he then begins to, to draw a line to an overall message. The first thing that he instructs them to do in light of this is to beware of the leaven. The sin of hypocrisy, the infectious sin of the Pharisees, he says, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. 
Remember, Jesus had publicly condemned the Pharisees and the scribes for being hypocrites, right? And so it's unlikely that any of his disciples at this moment, at this time, having just seen Jesus call out the, the, the religious leaders for what they had done, it's unlikely that any of his disciples really were going, well, I think I want to be a hypocrite. You know, that wasn't why Jesus was saying, beware. And, and as we talked about this hypocrisy last week as it relates to our own spiritual lives, I think we all now clearly, fully, hopefully understand just how dangerous spiritual hypocrisy can be, moral hypocrisy. However, Jesus warned against the sin of hypocrisy to his disciples, and I think also to us again this morning, because he knew that one of the temptations we all face is to pretend to be something we're not when the eyes of others are on us. And now the crowds of people were there. They were on his disciples. And Jesus is saying, guys, don't, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the Pharisees. And in doing so, when we pretend to be something we're not, when the eyes of others are on us, in doing so, you know what we do? We try to hide. We try to hide what we're really like to in an attempt to maybe impress others around us. Now, the main problem with this and there's lots of problems with this because we talked about it last week, but Jesus really, for his disciples, because it's not just about revealing the wrong that the, 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 the Pharisees were doing and trying to bring them to the place of repentance like we saw last week. Jesus is now discipling his disciples, teaching them, and the message takes a little bit of a shift. And, and we see that in the outcome from what Jesus is now focusing on that we get to look at too because the problem, one of the, 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 the main problems with hypocrisy, um, which we discussed in, in detail last week, is the fact that hypocrisy puts the focus on making sure the outside looks good even though the inside is a spiritual and moral mess, right? And, and the problems that come with this are many, but the principal problem, what Jesus brings forth here in this word, the principal problem in pretending to be something that we're not is that it's an attempt to impress or to please people at the expense of being pleasing to God. Every time. And God, who sees and knows everything and is concerned with the inside as well as the outside, sees past the pretend he sees past the mask that we put on, and he knows who we really are, right? We talked about that. And when we ended last week's study and finished chapter 11, it's clear that the religious leaders had become very angry at Jesus for pointing out not only their spiritual blindness, but also for condemning and revealing their hypocritical way of living. And because they were these powerful people who were willing to do anything at this point in order to hold on to their power, it, there was this real danger. And in addition, addition to this, Jesus' popularity was growing and the fact that many more people were now following Jesus than ever before, this was an additional threat to the religious leader's way of life. They saw firsthand their, their power base, if you will, being, being swayed away. But Jesus was not afraid of his enemies, nor was he impressed by the great number of people who had gathered to follow him, and this, I bring all of that back to light because through this we see that the reason why Jesus wasn't afraid and he didn't live hypocritically or pretend to be something he would not or was impressed by the great number of people who were following is because Jesus, as we're told, lived to please God. I always do the Father's will. It doesn't matter. Even his own followers. You know, there are times when people are close to us, we kind of like maybe find it hard to speak the truth to someone who's close to us. 
We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to offend them. We don't want them to forsake us or leave us. But even in this, Jesus was always with his own, with his own guys, with his own closest to him, be like, you guys are like this, and this is wrong. You know, he always did it with a heart of love and a spirit of compassion, but he, hold, he held nothing back. And if that meant that they would get ticked at him and leave, then so be it. Why? Because he was living to please God alone. And I point that out and, 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 and remind us of Jesus' example in the context of what Jesus is speaking to his disciples because, because Jesus must have seen that his disciples were worried about the Pharisees and he must have seen that, that his disciples were impressed by the great numbers of people who were now following him. I mean, put yourselves in their shoes. We would be too. We would have a little bit of fear of these Pharisees. We would probably be impressed a little bit, especially if we're in the inner circle, right? Yeah, I know Jesus. We eat dinner together, you know, we hang out, we, we go pray together. As a matter of fact, he taught me how to pray. You know, this, this kind of thing, you have all these people, you're in the inner circle, you get, you, you, you can, we all have that can kind of go to your head kind of a thing. And so in light of this, this warning to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right, which is hypocrisy, Jesus went on to warn them, if you look at verses four and five, he went on to warn them, this is the next doc. How does it lead to what he's saying? He's, he, he leads us to the next space. And he says, he's warning them by saying, to, and giving them the answer to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to be free from the, the sin of hypocrisy, to fear God alone and to not be afraid of men. In other words, don't care what other people think, care what God thinks. And, and he reminds them of that, and we see this too and should apply it to our own lives because when we live, listen, when we live with the knowledge and understanding of not only who God is, but also of what God can do and choose to live in a way that seeks to honor and please him, then we have no reason to fear anyone else and no reason to pretend to be someone we're not. God, I only care about impressing you. You're the creator. You're the judge. You're my father. You're my savior. You're my protector. You're my provider. You know, many times I was working in the, in the secular world and um, I had to tell myself, listen, God's the one that signs my paycheck, not this guy. And so I need to seek to honor and please God first. But you know what? When I'm honoring and pleasing God first, then I'm going to be, um, be fulfilling what needs to be done in my workplace or in my marriage or in my parenting or, you know, I don't need to be afraid of men and do things in a way that someone else wants me to do and forsake doing it God's way. But if I remember who he is and what he can do and who he is to me and what he is for me, then I have no reason to, to, to pretend to be something that I'm not or to do something that I shouldn't be doing. Now, many people today are, I, I, I got to take a moment to do this real quick, because there are many people today, when you come to a passage like this, uh, passages that um, talk about the fear of God, right? They can get offended. You know, they go, well, that's an unloving thing. Why would, we don't, we don't really, we don't really need to fear God. How can, we're to love God, and God loves us. Why would he want us to fear him? And, and they'll, they'll dismiss it in lots of ways. They'll either say that it, it's, it, it's not really what it's saying, it's not really what it means. It's like, it's just this, just have reverence for him like a father. Well, absolutely, but you know one of the reasons why I revered my father is because my dad would spank my butt, you know? And he would discipline him, he would correct me. There was this 
this fear of my dad. And it was a, it was a not, it wasn't like my dad was abusive or anything. I'm not trying to say that, but, and, and so I point that out and I'm here to tell you, I just want to bring clarity that, that the Greek word for afraid in this verse, okay, Verse four, the very first one where we're told not to be afraid of a person who can kill the body. And then the word in verse five where Jesus instructs us to fear God who has the power to send us to hell. And not only does he say to fear God, but he says why to fear him. Those, that word fear and afraid is the same word in the Greek. And it translates to afraid and fear. And it's the word uh, phobio. And it means this, to put to flight by terrifying. And I'm, I'm kind of... It's just a little joke. Something about me, I think it's funny. People don't. My house, I like to scare my family. They'll like come down the stairs. They'll be hiding behind the corner. And I'll, ah! I'll terrify them, right? And um, that kind of sense of dread and awe, like something's going to get you kind of a thing, that's being put to flight by terrifying. That's the word that's being referred to here. The fear of God, why? Because he can send you to hell. And you know what? That should be terrifying. It also means to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm. And, and ultimately, the fruit of that in this definition is to treat with admiration and reverential obedience. That's what this word phobia means. The point is, we are taught all throughout Scripture, and people will say, oh, it's only Old Testament stuff. No, it's New Testament as well. And, and in this passage and others like it, we're taught that um, our, our God who is holy, our God who is righteous, our God who is just, is a God who is to be feared. However, because there is this lack of the fear of God in this world, in, within the church today, there are all kinds of evils because of that. And even in the lives of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, today in the church, because there's this lack of fear of God, we try to dismiss what the Word of God tells us to. And in doing so, what is bred into our lives through that is compromise, willful disobedience, and a lack of holiness to a God who says, be holy because I am holy. And with this being said, it's important to point out that God who has the power to send a person to hell, okay, he does not have a desire to do so. And that's how we can connect the two things together, the love of God and the fear of God. God has the power to send a person to hell, yet he does not have a desire to do so. And it tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is because we know that our God, who is a holy God, who is a righteous God, who is a just God, is also a God who loves us, is also a God who cares for us, and, and, and ultimately, because of that, is a God who desires to be in an intimate and personal relationship with us. And that's the next dot that Jesus leads us to in these words of discussion with his disciples. And look there in verses 6 and 7, because Jesus went on to point this out. As he takes us further down this trail, that God who loves us and God who cares for us so much knows us so intimately that he has each one of the hairs on our head numbered. So why would Jesus say that right after, after saying, oh, and by the way, fear God, but he loves you, he cares about you, he's got the heads, hairs of your head numbered. And, and, and the reason why is because by this we know that we are greatly loved because we see that we are greatly valued. 
you're greatly loved because you're greatly valued. This word and this, this um, principle of being valued by God comes up over and over and over again in this chapter. Go back through it and look and see. We're greatly loved because we're greatly valued. In fact, God, here's where it gets to the, to the nitty-gritty, God proved his great love for us by making a way for our sins to be forgiven and to be saved from the judgment and the punishment of hell as an eternal dwelling place. And he did so through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And it's this love of God, listen, it's this love of God that we come to know through Jesus Christ that gives us the opportunity to fear him like it says here, but fear him differently than the world fears him or those who are still in the place of condemnation because of their sin fears them or should, should fear him because it gives us the opportunity to fear him while at the same time not being afraid of him as we live our lives because we know he saved us, because we know he's redeemed us, because we know he's purchased us, because he know, we know he loves us intimately and personally. He's provided the way. He's made the way. He's paid the way. And so we can still fear him while at the same time not be afraid of him as we live our lives. Why? Because I'm not going to hell. I'm not going to hell. And this is because it's the love of God and the grace of God that we receive through our faith in Jesus. This is what now motivates me and hopefully motivates you to live in obedience to God and to repent when we don't. But you will what? Still in my heart, I know he's a, he's a just God. I know he's a righteous God. I know he's a holy God. And he desires his children to be as he is. And Jesus went on to point out in verses six and seven um, that God who loves us and, and has all of our hairs on our head numbered loves us. And that's the motive. Now, when we connect this back to the sin of hypocrisy, we see some things, Okay. And the sin of hypocrisy, which is rooted in a desire to please man, is compared to, by, compared to as leaven by Jesus in verse 1. Because leaven, which is another name for yeast, the yeast that we use to cook with today in breads and such, it starts small, it grows quickly, and it saturates every part of the dough. We want that in, that, in, in dough, but we don't want that in our lives. And so Jesus gives this graphic illustration of leaven, sin, and hypocrisy, and he points that it's, it's like that because it's something that starts out small. Hypocrisy will start out small, innocently. But then it grows quickly, and it will ultimately, if it's not turned away from, invade every area of your life. It will. But Jesus pointed out that pretending to be something that we are not is not is, is, is that it's destined to fail. Why? Because it's a temporary thing. You can only hide behind a mask for so long before the truth is revealed. You know, and God loves us so much that He's going to expose those times when we're pretending to be something we're not, when we're not concerned about the outside and only the outwardly. He's gonna reveal it. That's what he's saying here. And we think sometimes when we read passages like in verses two and three where, where it says that all things will be uncovered, that all things who, what are hidden will be revealed, is we think about that in the eternal aspect of things and going that, yes, one day when we get to heaven, that'll happen. And it's true. God will make all things known. But here now, he loves us enough to not let us to continue to go down a path that is leading to destruction, and he will expose those things. He'll bring it to light because he loves us. So because there are attempts to be something we are 
um, to be something that, that we are not, because they're, they're, they're temporal, they're futile to failure. Therefore, when we understand that, our only hope is to admit what and who we are, what we really are, as we then, in doing so, put our faith in Jesus, and Jesus then promises to us when we do that, in verses 8 and 9, right, the next step, that if we confess, if we go, God, yeah, you know what I'm like, this is what I am, I'm no longer hiding, I'm no longer pretending, that if we confess him before men, living not in the fear of men, only looking to live or, 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 excuse me, not living in the fear of men or living to please or impress men, then when the day of judgment comes, okay? Then when the day of judgment comes, when God reveals all things, you know what's gonna happen? When we're, we're naked before God, we're, we're the, what everything that's on the inside has been brought forth to the outside, you know what's gonna happen? when we're honest about that in this life, when that day of judgment comes, when God reveals all things, we're told that Jesus will stand by our side. And he will be our advocate. He will defend us and he will save us. However, if we persist in pretending to be something or someone we are not and deny Jesus in this life, he says, before men, right, living our lives to please and impress men, putting on a mask, pretending to be something we're not, then we're gonna be left to stand before God alone, without an advocate, alone, without a defender, alone, without a savior, and a God who sees past the mask and the thoughts and intents of the heart, we're told that he will judge and even the hidden things will be known, and that's something to be afraid of. And this denial, guys, this denial or rejection of Jesus that is being referred to here in verse 10 is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've heard that terminology before. Many people interpret it to be other things, but when you take it clearly in the context of what we, what, what's being spoken here, it's very simply discernible. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit of God is the one who reveals Jesus to us. It's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. It's the Holy Spirit of God that bears witness to our hearts that Jesus is the only way because he's the only begotten Son of God. And so when a person, when we either either completely or in our daily lives, as we enter into this sin hypocrisy, reject the testimony and the witness of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, who convicts a person of sin and unrighteousness, and, 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 and then points them to Jesus when we reject that, that's an act of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because ultimately it's a rejection of Jesus. And this is so important to understand because this is the only sin that God will not forgive. God forgives every sin that we have, it says, except for this. He says that he casts our sin into a sea of forgetfulness when we confess and come to him. He remembers it no more. He throws it as far as it is from the east as it is to the west. And there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he does so conditionally. That's what we're told here. And the condition is, is that if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God and confess with our mouths that he is the Lord of our lives. But understand, this is key, because Jesus takes it a step further here. Understand that even though a person can confess Jesus with their mouth, they can still deny him by the way that they live their lives. 
And so we must heed Jesus' warning to what? To beware of the sin of hypocrisy. I I can think of no greater hypocrisy than to say I'm a Christian and live like a heathen. So we must heed Jesus' warning to beware of hypocrisy, taking off the mask daily. And we do this, it's very simple, because we're all hypocrites. We're all sinners. That's the problem. But the way we avoid, we beware of the sin of hypocrisy is that we daily admit that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, repenting of our sins and receiving the forgiveness and the love of God that he has waiting for us. Remember, I said it last week, I would rather be an honest sinner than a lying hypocrite. Now, as we read on in this account, verse 13, with this man, we're told that out of the innumerable crowd of people, a certain man, a man came asking for Jesus, for his help, and um, this encounter is what, what opened the door for this additional warning, and a warning about covetousness, and in words of encouragement in regards to worry. And they are all connected to even what we just read through here, and I'll bring that up here. So if you look in, in verse 13, I'm going to read, you can follow along. It says, then, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to him, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, This is never good. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. If you're going to speak to your soul, make it only about eternal things, okay? This guy was carnally minded, temporally minded, and he was trying to find peace in his heart in the temporal things of this life. But look what happens. But God said to him, the one we're supposed to fear, right? Fool. God said, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Then he said to his disciples, and this is a contrast as Jesus speaks this, this there's a contrast here. He says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor worry about the body and what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. He said, consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. And how, how much more value are you than the birds? Again, this, this principle of being valuable to God. And which of you, be, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God, if God then so clothes the grasses, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all of these things nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. 
But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now, this man, there's, I wish I had another hour <laughs> I do. So many things here I want to bring forth. But this man came, this man who came to Jesus, he gives us an example. He gives us an example of how many people will come to Jesus. And I think even we as Christians can fall into this trap today. And so it's, it's, it's an issue of coming to Jesus in regards to salvation, but also just in everyday life. In that, um, this man as well as others and us as well, you know, at times we want Jesus to solve our problems, but we don't want him to deal with the inside, the sin, the deceit, and the wickedness, you know? And uh, that's in our heart. And you see, this man thought that, this man, get this, this man thought that his problem was that his brother was, was he thought his brother was his problem because his brother wasn't sharing in his inheritance with him. And so he, he wishes for Jesus to intervene and then to divide this inheritance between him fair, fairly. And it was, it's very likely that this man had a rightful claim to the inheritance that he was now being denied. But listen, don't be deceived by the man's word. Listen to Jesus' words, because by when we listen to Jesus' words, we can see that justice was not the real motive for why this man was coming to ask Jesus to intercede. This guy was greedy. He had covetousness in his heart. Was there an issue of justice? Probably but he was coming to Jesus because he wanted those things. And that was the real issue. He was covetous. He was coveting. And he was being denied that. And, and Jesus, being God in the flesh, he could see into the man's heart and he saw the greater need and he pointed out this greater problem, the real reason for why the man had come. And it was the fact that he had a covetous heart. And covetousness, which is also translated to the word greed, some of your Bibles may actually interpret it or translate it to greed, it means to have this, an intense craving and a selfish desire for a possession. Now, I've had intense cravings. Usually it's for food when I'm on a diet. That's just my thing. I love food. And, and when I can't have it, it seems to be that's the only thing I can think about is what I can't have. <laughs> And, and so when I, I don't know, maybe you have other intense cravings. Think about that in, 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 as we look at the definition of that. Try to relate to it. You know, we can go, oh, intense craving. You know, but think about it's like, or maybe you've been so thirsty. You're like, oh, I'm going to die if I don't get a drink. And, uh, and, and, but it comes along with this selfish desire for a possession, wealth, or power. That's what covetousness is. And a, and a, and a covetous person is marked by um, in this definition of it, is, is marked by an inordinate desire ultimately for another person's possessions. Okay? And this was the heart problem that was Jesus was dealing with. And he warned about covetousness and told the parable about the rich man who put his, 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 his trust in the treasures. And in doing so, he... he, 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 he um, warns about covetousness. And by this, we see that one of the spiritual problems, get this, one of the spiritual problems with covetousness is that it deceives us into thinking that our security and hope is in the temporal things of this life. Oh, if I just get this, my soul will be satisfied. All I will be okay. 
you know, and it's, 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 a, it's a temporal thing that we're looking for. We're deceived into thinking that our security and our hope, our peace, our comfort is somehow going to come from the temporal things of this life. That's what covetousness leads us to. And, and, and these things are what we then will end up putting our trust in. Now, the statement Jesus makes here in verse 15, get this. The statement that Jesus makes in verse 15 when he said, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. I mean, we need to, I know you've heard that before, but hear it again, let it sink in. This is so valuable. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And this statement that Jesus makes here, after giving this warning to beware of covetousness, is very important for us to take note of because what it does is it contradicts the philosophy of this world that we're daily being saturated with. And we need to take heed to what Jesus says here because we can be deceived by the world's way of thinking when we're saturated, when we're immersed in it, until we somehow think that, well, my life really consists in the abundance of the things that I have. My house, my car, my family, my boat, not that I have a boat. I want friends to have boats. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, these things, we start to think somehow, you know, the clothes that we wear, the jewelry that we have, the places where we get to go, all these things that somehow our life consists in the abundance of the things we possess. Look at Facebook. Look at Instagram. Look at Snapchat. All these social media things. Everybody's life is somehow divined by these earthly or temporal things. And we can be so sucked into it so quickly and lose sight of this truth that Jesus says here. Our life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. And it's important for us to take note of it, but only because it, it contradicts the philosophy of the world, but because we're constantly being saturated with it, but also because the world's way of thinking in this way, it leads to, be, it leads to destruction. That kind of thinking that kind of way of life leads to destruction in every way. And that's what's being illustrated in this parable. And in this parable, we see the farmer's money, the one thing that he had put his faith and trust in. Oh, my soul, we have more. We're going to be okay. It did not solve his problems. On the contrary, it created new problems for the farmer. I have too much. Now I need more storehouses. You know, and that's often the case with getting more of things that we need because we think our lives consist of the things that we have. And so we, we have all these, you know, there's, go to Walmart, especially around Christmas time, and see about all the storage bins that they have for you to buy that you can then put your stuff in and store it in your attic, store it in your basement, put it in your storage container because you, you just, that's my life. And so what happens is you, 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 the, the, you get more and you realize you have more problems. And it created new problems from this problem. And it's often the case with having more of anything than a person really needs, right? Now, let me say this. not a sin to be wealthy um, or to have things in this life, but it's foolish 
It's foolish and even sinful to put your trust in your wealth or in the temporal things of this life. That's what's being spoken about. And the Apostle Paul writes again about this in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, in, 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 in a special uh, instruction, he says, command those who are rich in this present age to not be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And the farmer in this parable is given as an illustration of covetousness um, because he had foolishly put his trust in his wealth and not in God. The surety to his soul, as he communes with his soul, here was his things. It wasn't in a relationship with God, in eternal things, in what he had after this life. And his wealth could not give him the security he was looking for. The fact of the matter is, is if we have wealth which the large majority of us in this country do in comparison to the rest of the world, then we're prone to covetousness. We're prone to trust in our things. Listen, there's no poor people in America. There's just not. I've been around the world, and I've not yet met anybody who lives on a dollar a day here in this, unless it's a choice. You know, you have, there's so much available here. And I won't get into a social commentary. The point is, is lots of times we don't consider ourselves to be rich, and that's not true. By God's point of view, one who's created the whole world and sees all things, even all the way down through time to now, and he puts us all on the same playing field, we have great wealth. We're the rich guys. We are. And so we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful. You know what, but those who are poor, which sometimes we wrongly, I think, perceive ourselves to be, what's, what's the tendency then when we're poor? I think this tendency then is to worry. Oh, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to get here? What car? You know, all these things. My cell phone broke. I have to send out all new contact information. No. <laughs> and so, but here, worry and covetousness are both, are both sins, but Listen, guys, the sin of worry is what Jesus went on to contrast in light of this parable of the rich man and his sin of covetousness. And in doing so, Jesus made the simple but often forgotten truth by reminding us that God cares for the birds of the air and the grasses of the field which belong to him. So if we belong to him, if we're valuable to him, then it's his obligation, his responsibility, and his pleasure to care for us who are of more value than the birds in the air and the grasses of the field. So if we keep that in mind, then what should we conclude? We have no reason to worry. Again, is our security in what we have? Is our life consistent in what we possess? Or is it in who we know and what we have in him? Whether we have a little or where we have a lot. We have no need to worry. The point of this truth, guys, we're going to wrap it up. The point of this truth serves a threefold purpose. Okay? The, the point of this truth has a threefold purpose. The first is it should move us to live by faith and trust in God even more today. If you know that God's going to abundantly provide for every one of your needs, that he has an obligation, a responsibility, and a great desire to care for us, then why would we not walk by faith and trust in him? Why would we put our trust in anything else? So the point, these truths are designed to, to, to go, have faith, trust in God. Furthermore, it's the point of this truth to set us free from seeking the things of this life, which can be so burdensome and so destructive, so that we can seek first the kingdom of God. 
You've heard it said, we're not taking anything with us. We came into this world naked and we go out of this world naked. But you know what? We have the ability while we're in this life to store up things in heaven in eternity where we're going to spend the rest of their life. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be poor up there. I want to have some things. We're we're robbers and moth and rust and all these things can't get to. Because, you know what, if I have a jet boat in heaven, it's going to be way better than the jet boat I could ever have here. There's jet boats in heaven. Other things as well like that. Spiritual things too. (laughs) But you know what, when we remember this truth about God then we're freed up to go, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work on building my, my bank account in heaven, amen? And that's what God wants for us. He's all, don't worry about this life. I got it, I got you. Worry about the life to come and so you can have some good things here. God wants us to be blessed in this life and in the life to come. And lastly, is the point of this truth Listen, the worship team wants to come up. The point of this truth is to equip us as children of God, our heavenly Father, right? As children of God, the point of this truth is to equip us as children of God to be generous with the things that he's given to us, to not be stingy or selfish with the things that he's placed in his hand. How about this guy in the parable? Oh, what should I do? I have so much. I have no room to store my crops. How about giving some to someone else? You know, how about just blessing someone for the sake of blessing them? We don't even see it. We, I mean, we, God reveals the need. We give alms like we talked about last week. We have compassion. But you know what? Have you ever received something and you just didn't need it or didn't deserve it? And someone, I mean, that's what God does with us. If, if God's given you something and, 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 it's, and it's in abundance and you have a need or a desire to, to bless someone else, don't always just come to some checklist and go, well, no, they don't need anything. I'm not going to give it to them. I mean, look to be just a, a giver, to not be stingy with the things that God has placed in our hands. Because through that, God wants us to be generous and to not be stingy or selfish to the things that he has given us, the things that he's placed in our hand, so that we can experience that same blessing of giving that he has bestowed upon us and be a real example of God's loves to others. And this truth about God taking care of us. You know, I read this book once, and I'm, I'm, I don't recommend it, but it was about this guy, and it was what God called him to many, many times in his life. He gave everything away, and God gave him more than what he had given. And, and the book was a little off, so I don't want to talk about the book in, in relationship to it, but the idea is you can't outgive God. And sometimes we don't give, we're stingy. There's a Mexican word they call tacaño, where you hold the, you hold the hand back from reaching out because what we do is we got our lives focused on this life and about, you know, we got to take care of ourselves. And what if this? And what if that? And, but does not God care more about us? Are we not more valued than the sparrows and the grass and all these things? And they don't have storehouses. Listen, I'm going to end with this. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. It says, now, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, sin, into worthlessness, the ways of the world. It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed and from their faith and greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Would you guys stand? We'll pray. Lord, thank you for these encouragements and these, these warnings. And Lord, that um, you ultimately lead us to the place once again through these words of yours to our need for you, but also of your great love for us. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's holding on to their life and has not yet submitted their life to you and, and because of fear, because of lack of trust, because of, of unwilling to let go of, of things that you're calling them to, I pray, Lord, that they would let go and accept you today, that they would call out to you as Lord and allow you to be their Savior. And I pray for us again, Lord, as this world is a way of penetrating into our, into our minds, into our hearts, I pray you would cleanse us. You would do a good work in us. So, Lord, that we would not be, um, so that we would, um, how do I say this, Lord, so that we would be pleasing to you. And I know we're pleasing to you, but, Lord, we want to live in a way that honors you and pleases you. So, Lord, we need, we need, we need more of you. We need, we need more faith to trust in you. And, Lord, you promise to give us what we need when we, when we call out to you. And so, Lord, this morning, where each person's at, whatever the need is, I pray, God, you would meet it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you guys need prayer this morning, come forward after this last song of worship, and there will be people up here to pray with you. Take advantage of it.